have no clue what you guys are talking There's about. There's a really creepy kids show about a magic bus that like literally shrinks and goes inside oh, people's bodies. the magic bodies school bus, Mrs. And, Frizzle. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what is this? That's my childhood. That's the reason I fell in love with technology and science is because of Mrs. Frizzle. She's like, really? and now people, we're going to break the rules of physics and go inside the human body. And of course, like when you're like seven and eight, you're like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. I'm Todd Lyons. I'm Natalie Crandall. I'm Valeria Sosa. And I'm Sanon Baltajolu. And this is the Innovate On Demand podcast. One of the myths of the public service is that governments lack innovation, efficiency, and effectiveness when compared to the private sector. Our guest this episode worked for a mega corporation before joining the public service and experienced firsthand how any organization can be bogged down as it scales up in size and complexity. He believes that success is tied to a willingness to adapt. So what has his experience been like since joining the public sector? Let's find out. Thanks for joining us today, Sinan. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and where you work? Absolutely. It's a pleasure to join you guys today on this podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. So I'm Sinan. I'm from the Digital Academy. And specifically, I'm on the Digital Innovation Services team. And you can kind of think of us as like the R&D arm of the school. Very interesting. So what, uh, what kind of things are you guys up to right now on that team? So like all good geeks do, we are deep into the experimentation and doing minimum viable products and doing proof of concepts and really trying to push the envelope when it comes to the art of the possible. So like, what does that mean? It means we're experimenting with technologies like machine learning. We're trying to do sentiment analysis on our free text so that we can get like quantitative information instead of just qualitative. We're pushing the envelope on what it means to do quick builds. So you give us a napkin of a couple of ideas that you have, and then you walk away. And four days later, we come to you and say, hey, it's in the cloud. Here's your application. Check it out. So we're working on agile processes, trying to change what it means to be a developer in the government of Canada. So how long have you been with the team? So I'm actually a pretty new transplant into the uh, the public service. I'm, I started in January, so I've only been here about six or so months. Okay. And I'm loving it. Prior to that, I was in the private sector. So getting the opportunity to use your time and talent to help Canadians and the public service and really do right by your country is an opportunity you just can't get anywhere else. So I've, I've been loving my time in the public service. I'm looking forward to continuing. And what were you doing in the private sector, if you don't mind me asking? Before I went to a mega corporation is where I spent the last seven years of my life. I was in startups. So I was doing diabetes management software. Think of it like Facebook for diabetes, uh, a lot of reverse engineering for meters and so on. So anything geekery wise, you can think that we've done it in the past. <laughs> and what did you study? I'm actually a software engineer by training. So I went to the University of Waterloo from 2001 to 2007 did that, and basically there's no breaks, so it's like four months of school, four months of co-op, four months of school, and I, I think that kind of prepares you for life in government, where it's just go, 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 go all the time. Mm -hmm. And so did you find the Digital Academy, or did they find you? So funny you should mention, I was, I was sitting on my couch one day going through my endless Netflix playlist, which is impossible <laughs> to get to the bottom of. I think that's an NP hard problem. Someone on the line can totally it check is. this for us. But I was, I was on Reddit, and I was going through, and I find this article about they're creating the Digital Academy. And I was kind of paying attention to the government because like I saw the Canadian Digital Services coming around. And I'm like, interesting signals are happening in Gov. And then the moment I saw what the mandate of the school is, which is to upskill basically 300,000 public servants, I'm thinking, well, this is exactly it. Because 
I've been developing since I was 14. I built my first like corporate web page in 1997 and like I'm only like 35, 36. So I've spent nearly half of my life doing tech stuff. But it's kind of neat because now it's getting to the stage where anybody can make amazing things happen super quickly. So being able to be at this juncture in history and say, okay, now I can snap together things like AI systems and sentiment analysis system and just kind of go with it. It's it's super oh, for wild. For the record, not anyone can just put those things together. <laughs> so that's my hope, though. So I want to see a future where you don't need a PhD in order to get involved with these new technologies like machine learning. For example... So in my first week of working for the public service, my, my boss, Sean Kibbe, who's the director of the Digital Innovation oh, Service. Sean. Yeah, oh, no. Sean's a great guy. We, we, we love him to pieces. So he looks at me and says, okay, we've got this idea. Uh, let's make a chatbot. And I say, okay, well, what do you want it to do? He's like, I don't know. It should do this and this and this. Figure it out. Let's, let's, let's try something. Like stand it up in three or four days. Okay. Off we go into the dispit and we start banging away on code. Now, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a machine learning expert by any chance. Uh, what I do is I've got an ability to use metaphors and analogies to help people understand kind of what it is from a human perspective. So I, I went into the system. And I'm thinking, well, I don't have time to gather a couple million data points for English and French and try to understand the language. And well, how is it going to recognize my speech? And then once it does that, how is it going to understand my intent? And then I realized you don't actually have to do any of that stuff yourself anymore. HTML5, it's got speech recognition and transliteration. So I can say something to my phone and then it turns it into text. Well, that's step one. But now how do we get the intent? There's a system called Wit AI. I throw my text at Wit and it returns back something to me which says, I think I'm 95% confident that you wanted to search this site. And then what I do is I take that content and the intelligent part is around what you do with it. Mm -hmm. And that's really where everybody is going to kind of stumble with AI and machine learning because if you use the wrong data or you use too much of a specific type of data or you didn't massage it the right way first, the answers that it gives you will be right according to the machine, but maybe wrong according to us. Mm -hmm. Like, what do I mean? So let's say you wanted to identify dogs versus wolves. You give the machine a million pictures of dogs and a million pictures of wolves and you say, okay, machine, I've, un I've let you do this unsupervised learning, figure it out. Here's a new picture. What is this? and you give it a picture of a wolf in a living room. And then the machine tells you that it's a dog. It tells you to run. <laughs> yeah, you'd hope. But no, it's like, oh no, this is a dog. This giant thing is a dog. And you ask yourself, well, why? Why did it get it wrong? I gave you a million pictures of dogs. I gave you a million pictures of wolves. You should have figured this out. And then when you start poking it, you figure out you didn't actually build a dog-wolf checker. Mm -hmm. You've built something that checks to see if the background is a snowy Norwegian forest. Because if it is, it's a wolf. Hmm. And so it's the, the difference between, like, a machine will just simply try to give you the answer that it thinks will answer its own question. For example, if you say, machine, give me world peace. A completely viable solution is to eliminate all the humans. Because that's world peace. No one's fighting. May not be optimal for us. <laughs> But that's around defining the context and giving the, the machines a little bit more about the human side, which is really going to be the challenge of the future as we move forward into this stuff. Interesting. Talk to me about something that you're working on now and how it's going to apply, apply to the public service or public servants or how they can use it. Sure. So one of the, uh, one of the neat projects we're working on right now is actually uh, an interesting little thing that we did where the, the deputy minister came to us and he's like, all right. We want you to take a look at the way we collect information from our learners, from the people who attend our events, from the people who attend our courses. Think about how it's done today 
And instead of doing an incremental improvement on the system, we want you guys to take a quantum leap into the future. Think blue skies, go out there, build something, put it in front of real human beings and come back to us with real data about what works and try something. Just don't sit in a room and have a meeting to have a meeting to talk about the requirements to define the requirements. Just you guys are smart. We trust you. We hired you for a reason. Go out and do it. So what we're doing is we said, okay. Did you get a little tear when they said we Oh, absolutely. Like, for someone like me who's, I, I like to think of myself as almost like a fire and forget missile. It's just, you give me good instructions and I will give you what you need quickly. And then we can iterate on it and make the product what you want. I, I don't like spending years on ideas because by the time you get to the implementation phase, the entire environment might've changed and your idea, while great a year ago, isn't great anymore. So what we started to do was, okay, what's the hard part in surveying people? Some people are going to throw their hands up and saying, well, every time we give a new survey to IT, it takes this many weeks to get done, and then we have to go back and forth and fix it, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I actually don't think the technology's the hard part. It's an annoying part. It's frustrating. It shouldn't be. But it's not the hard part. It's routine. It's rote. The hard part is asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. The hard part is talking to the internal team is saying, okay, what are we going to survey? Do we need this to go through ethics? Do we need to have certain people come in and chime in? And so everybody usually builds a survey in Word first, and we email it around. We talk about it. We correct the words. Okay, we shouldn't ask it this way. This is exclusionary language. We should do it like this. This is like masculine coded. And you kind of move on, and that's the hard part. So I said, what if that was the challenge? So step one is to redefine the way the business process works. Why do I need developers to build a form? Forms are generic. Let's build a language to describe forms. So imagine if you would, if to build a full web-enabled mobile application, works on every device, multimodal, blah, 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 what would you need to do? I think it's as simple as saying, Q, colon, this is my question. Pick one. It was good, it wasn't good. What if that was all you needed to write to build an application? You don't need to be a developer. You know what questions you want to ask. Q colon's pretty common. So that's what we did. We built a generator that takes this language of surveys, generic, that you can literally email to people or Slack to people. And with a copy paste, we can drop it in and in 10 seconds generate a form, which is instantly out there in the cloud. And then the major bonus is building dashboards is really annoying too because, you know, you build a form and then the dashboard person builds a dashboard, but then you change the form and then the dashboard breaks. Well, let's not build dashboards. Let's generate them. So now we use the data that we get and we automatically build these full custom dashboards which show you the information on the day. So imagine this. You got 50 people in a room. They open their phones and they scan a QR code and within three seconds the form's on their phone. They submit the answers and on a screen somewhere or on your tablet as you're walking around, you live see the answers coming in. Bing, bing, bing. 90% liked it but 10% hated it. Now, before they even leave the conference room, I can put my hand up and say, if anybody really hated this, I'd like to talk to you if you'd like to talk to us. Think about the opportunity you get now. Now you have live, real, valuable feedback. So that's what we're trying to do. That's the Evalhalla project. So Eval, Evalhalla. We're dorks. Our API is called <laughs> Registhor. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Um, Sinan, I have a question for you. So you mentioned that you worked in startups before. So I'm, um, I'm really interested in the concept of innovating in the federal government and what are the opportunities and some of the obstacles. So I'd like to have 
your take on on what the differences are sure. in uh, in the private sector and the government and where maybe we have room for improvement or opportunities to seize here. Absolutely. So the first thing I'm going to say is actually it's kind of a misnomer that the private sector has it all right. That's the very first thing I'm going to say. The moment you increase in size to the point where you get to like mega corporation, the issues and challenges that we have in the public sector from what I've been seeing are pretty much the same. It's our projects are complicated. The people we're working with have a lot of deadlines and pressure on top of them. Our, our mission changes. We get people coming and going. There's a bunch of shift and drift. But forgetting all that for a second, the, the startup mentality is really kind of a philosophy around if I don't do it now, if I don't do it well, I'm not going to eat. So, I mean, for me, I used to joke when I was working in the startup, it's just like, I'm a mercenary and I work so that my cat can have cat food. That is my, my, my win condition. That's my end uh, goal. That, because if I went home and I didn't bring the cat food, despite the fact that she doesn't have opposable thumbs, I would wake up the next day not here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely shuffled loose the mortal coil. I, I have a cat, I know. Oh, yes. <laughs> But yeah, so I think some of the some of the interesting things that we can transfer from startups and the private sector into the public service is if you give people faith and trust in their abilities, if when you're hiring them, you hire them based on their capacity to learn, not just what they know right now. And then the real, real challenge, which I'm seeing a lot of resistance in the public service so far, but I think that's just because we're going through this transformational phase right now, is you can't give chefs rusty doll knives. You can't. So if your machine is even four or five years old, really with the acceleration, the pace of change, it's not just four years old. It feels like it's 40 years old because now the system that you need needs four gigabytes, but your entire machine has like two, maybe four if you're lucky and it starts falling down. If you need to crunch data and you're like, Say you're working in Environment Canada and you're, a, you're an EC3 or something and you're working on analyzing your, your program data. If your machine falls down and crashes every time you're crunching this data, how effective can you be in your job? That's, that's time of Canadian citizens that's going to be wasted. That's taxpayer money that disappears, really, if you think about it. So if you give chefs sharp knives, or in this case, like what I, I love developing on computers which pretend to be tablets, Nice and light and small, I can touch the screen, I've got full-scale freedom to do what I want, I can install things on my machine that I need, I can work in Python, I can work in R, I can work with these open-source tools. For example, at our department, GitHub isn't blocked, but there's certain public departments where you can't access GitHub. If, if you're in one of those departments you can't access GitHub, I want you to talk to your leadership right now and tell them you guys need to change today. Because that's like someone saying, oh, I got work to do, I'm not going to pay attention to these these horseless carriages? What is this stuff? My horse gets me where I need to go. And then, you know, I don't see horses in New York right now, aside from the few novelty ones. So it's kind of interesting. The game is changing. So we need to catch up or it's no longer survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most adaptable. So for the public service to survive, we have to adapt. And adaptation is going to be scary. The change management process is going to be hard. All of us are going to have to upskill in things that we used to say, I'll never have to know this. This isn't interesting to me. I think every human in the public service needs to get a little D development in them where they can say, okay, I understand this data a little bit better. I've got more data literacy under my belt. And it, it's a common language where we can start. Like there's going to be no end state where we're finished. We are now entering the continuous learning. And if you stop learning, you're just 
done. Because when I started building quote unquote modern web pages in like 2007, 2009, you know, I've been building them in 97. It was all like really basic. And then it got <laughs> super cool or so I thought. Well, I needed to know like four or five tools back then. Now in 2019, I need to know 33 tools. I need like Webpack, NPM, Babel, TypeScript, transliterate, like transpiling, God knows what else. It's, it's insane now. Like the, if there's a Cambrian explosion of technology and it's only going to accelerate with the, the changes in things like the AI side, the robotic side, the gene editing side, the mass social communication, the fact that you can have a conversation with a couple billion human beings at once. There's now mobile, there more mobile phones than there are human beings, I think, if my numbers are correct. Like it's, it's in the billions on billions. Like that's wild if you think about it. Because the human brain has 86 billion neurons. What happens when we get 86 billion devices out there? Well, that's the complexity of the human brain. And that's when scary stuff starts emerging out of it. <laughs> so let me ask you, what do you nerd out on after work hours? Oh, What's boy. your passion? So my, I've got a couple of passions, but probably when I'm not on a development station working on software and code, my other development station is a big ceramic charcoal barbecue. <laughs> and you laugh. It's so. Being I laugh a scientist, because I'm from Argentina. I appreciate someone who appreciates barbecue. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like, I, I like to joke that because I'm a software guy, when the power goes out, I have no skills. Because you can't program without electricity, and no matter how much you do on your keyboard, well, yeah, maybe you can make some interesting music, but I'd rather use a drum set. Oh well. Um, so the. The advantage here is I like starting fires with flint and steel, uh, throwing chunks of basically carbonized trees into a pit, and then spending the next eight or nine hours smoking half of a cow. Like that, that's, that's what I love doing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking my language. <laughs> oh, so the most, funny enough, this past weekend. We call it asado. <laughs> asado. Fantastic. So. I'm still learning the whole barbecue arm. I got a new one just recently. My folks kind of all got together and they're like, hey, here you go. This is a barbecue. Make it work. So I've got these eight dinosaur Flintstone ribs in this barbecue. I've got it going at 235. And I did some research around the stall, which is at like 150 degrees. The meat just kind of holds for a couple hours. I'm like, well, how do we fix this? This is what engineers do. You know, it's just like, how do I fix the barbecue process? Well, this is an engineering problem with inputs and outputs. <laughs> so I'm like, well, okay, humidity, the, the longer it's in a humid environment, the stall lasts longer. So let's just put apple juice and cold filtered coffee in my water pan, but only 1.5 liters. So by the three hour mark, it's completely gone. So that dries out in there. Then we got three hours of drying action. So you get the smoke absorption for about four, the drying action on the rub for two, only crack it twice to keep the heat up. And lo and behold, I got this amazing rib that came out with a nice pink ring around the outside, this homemade delicious barbecue sauce with wasabi and Saigon cinnamon, who knows what else. Like, this is what I mean. When I'm not <laughs> designing programs or building software, I'm attempting to do the same with my palate. <laughs> Your brain is fascinating. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to, um, by the way, we're going to invite you over for a barbecue. <laughs> Rock and roll. Um, so let's go back to uh, AI. Um, sure. What do you think about AI in the government context and what's going on? AI is kind of an interesting thing because it's it's turned into one of those blanket terms now. It's almost like, Rock and roll. You can ask anybody in the street, do you like rock and roll? And the majority of people will probably tell you yes. However, I like to listen to Swedish melodic death metal. That's also rock and roll, kind of. So you got to be really cautious about when you say, oh, is this artificial intelligence? And it's like, okay, what kind do we have? So there's what we're dealing with now in today's day and age is 
majority of it artificial narrow intelligence, which means you give it a picture of a dog, you ask, is it a dog? You say, okay, here's a bunch of text, tell me the sentiment, is this positive or negative? Uh, identify this, categorize that, classify this, give me expert opinion on that. It's very much so problem solution. But when you say artificial intelligence, you have to remember what we're comparing it against. Natural intelligence. Well, what's natural intelligence, right? Well, about 1.5 kilos, about 86 billion neurons, about a trillion connections, and the darn thing runs on 12 to 20 watts. Yet it's a dual core, massively parallel processor that creates sense, reason, and imagination. And it's between your ears and it constantly evolves. It updates its own software. It can sustain significant blunt force trauma and still work. You can cut the, um, the bandwidth connection between the two cores and this thing still works. It's one of the most amazing processors out there. And the darn thing runs on bananas and salt, potassium and sodium. <laughs> So, I mean, that's what we're comparing AI against. So, we're not there. The, the next stage of AI is the artificial general intelligence. And this is more what people think about when they say AI, because they're like, well, I'm going to ask it a thing, and it knows. But there's a lot of humans are, are very bad when it comes to anthropomorphic things, because we, we want to believe in the magic. We want to believe that the Wizard of Oz is real. We don't want to believe that there's some dude behind the curtain or some gal behind the curtain who's just you know, banging out this code and then saying, look, it's magic. It does all this. And really it's just, it's, it's, it's a homunculus. It fools you into thinking that it's got the, it, it's the Turing test concept, right? Like if you ask it enough questions, eventually you see the holes, right? So that's the general intelligence is when we actually start understanding context and it starts being able to have metacognition, thinking about the way it thinks, grabbing disciplines from other zones and adding it in. And at that stage, you also get a bunch of the other disciplines in machine learning, artificial intelligence, that whole arm, which is like machine perception, movement, uh, social intelligence, and all these different Lego pieces start snapping together. And it's the collision of these things that make it amazing. Because we had cameras, we had phones, we had email systems, we had fax systems, we had all these different things, mu music players, video cameras. Not until we smashed them all into one form factor device, which was super small and light and easy to use, did we see amazing changes start happening, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to see the same thing with AI once you get into the general and all this kind of factors in, and then you get to the spooky stuff, artificial superintelligence. Some people argue we're never going to get there, which might be the case. I think human beings are super duper creative and solving one problem solves many other problems and creates a whole bunch of other ones. But as long as we survive our technological adolescence and we don't be dumb and kill ourselves off and have a nuclear winter, who knows what else can go wrong because there's or a genetic explosion. CRISPR's got its own thing too. Like there are so many different like end game concepts which are floating around right now. So it's really exciting. So you ask, what do I geek out about? I geek out about like end of the world scenarios. So you'll find <laughs> me reading up on Ragnarok or various other ecclesiastology or however you pronounce that word. Just not sure. Not sure. <laughs> That's a question for the almighty Google. Um, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to rein it back in and just ask you about in the government context and AI Narrow down, give me a few points of advice that you would give the government with respect to AI and what's going on now, or lessons learned, or clarifying, you know, like, you know, this is yeah. what you need to know. Okay, so definitely the first thing I'm going to say is do not be fooled by the Wizard of Oz. Private sector will come to us, and they're really good at checking RFPs and RFQs and checking the boxes, you know, making like, this is, oh yeah, it totally does this. 
And if you don't have the PhD or the deep understanding of machine learning, it's very easy to be like, yeah, I trust you. You're a trustworthy person, human being. You've told me it does this thing. But it's like the nuance. For example, you say, I want you to build a system that has dogs. Show me dog parks. Reasonably easy. Geolocation, you get it. Show me dogs in parks. We've only added one word, but now I need a PhD in computer vision and God knows what else to solve this problem. So in government, it's make sure you don't get tricked by the flashy side of AI because it's very easy to build a 10% solution that makes you feel like you have 90, but to get to the 90 takes a lot. So first and foremost, be skeptical. We're still in the Atari days of all of this technology. (laughs) Number two, use AI slash machine learning slash intelligent analysis and predictive analysis, all this other stuff, to help inform decisions but not make decisions. Because again, the important part here is a computer or a machine will optimize it based on its parameters. Understanding human context, what matters to us, is a little different. For example, you go to a restaurant and they say, oh, your table is free. I know that that means there's no one sitting at my table and I can go there and sit down, but the machine's like, it costs no money, right? Lack of context. <laughs> so that's the other thing, is just to make sure you can, you got the, the right kind of section there. Last thing I'd say is genuinely experiment. Start trying these things out. Don't be afraid of failure. Fail forward, fail intelligently, fail smart. Be given the runway and freedom to actually inform policy through experience. Like I physically want there to be someone who sat down with the system and built something and tried it with a couple of real humans and said, this was good, this wasn't good, and this is why we should do what we do. So like if you can inform it through experience, it's a lot easier because the moment you have the thing in your hands, like watching Google demo Google Home is one thing, but having it in your kitchen and you screaming at it to add wasabi to your shopping list and it keeps adding wasa beats or wasa frike. It's like, what are you doing? Understand me. And it's not just, I'm not just singling out Google. This happens to the Alexa's, all of them. Like any speech recognition will have this challenge because we're all a little different. We all speak a little different. If you've got colloquial terms, your AI is going to be looking at you going, hey, other AI, what did they say? You should hear me try and get Spanish music played with my Google Home. I have to say it with an English accent. <laughs> Play Despacito. (laughs) (laughs) Something along those lines. (laughs) You say, hey, Siri, send me the the directions to 123 Principali Street. Oh, because apparently a lot of these are not bilingual software. Oh, yeah. Jean (laughs) d'Arc. Delivery. Yes. Um, I have a, I have a, um, uh, something I'm really curious about, Sinon. Um, I've been really interested in robotic process automation recently. Uh, and I'm actually starting to think about, uh, how robotic process automation and AI actually work together, particularly in the government context. So on the RPA front, uh, I feel like we have, huge opportunities in the government around our processes and repeatable things. And I think that sort of um, core group of public servants who work in administration as generalists who are supporting most of the operations of the federal government are going to see some unbelievable changes coming in the in the recent recent future. I completely agree 110%. So the interesting thing about that is, I like to say, let humans do human things, let machines do machine things. What machines are really good at is repeating something perfectly every time quickly. 
So let's say that you had to assemble or check, I don't know, let's say you need to check underneath trucks to see if the, the wheels are okay and so on and so forth. Maybe a human being going around is going to take a couple of minutes to do this. Well, a quick little drone or a robot goes and gets your answers for you is one way. But like, it's not even just like the robotic, like physical robots, like I'm thinking industry style, like the the Canada arm looking robots, mm-hmm. which have become even more amazing. In fact, I highly recommend you go to YouTube and check out this robotic arm dancing with a human dancer. And it's a very interesting thing where you see like the... <laughs> Sold! Yeah, you see the human training the robot and then the human starts to decay a bit and then the robot takes over and supports them. So that's neat. So... But for us, like the automation isn't just for robotics, but like, let's say you're in HR and let's say you're just drowning in the fire hose of like, oh, digital innovation services just sent you 45 requests to do. And then this other department did the same. You, you just can't get out from under it. Well, if you start using automation to figure out what do I do today? What do I not need to do manually myself? What can I reliably put into this automation framework? And then once it's automated, what the freedom in my time gives me the ability to do something new. So let's say that I don't actually need to go through all of my HR documents. 